If you have your Bible with you, I would invite you to turn to Matthew. We'll be looking at chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Matthew 1, verse 18. This is the Word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Jesus, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Good morning, church. <clears throat> so keep your fingers there in your Bibles as we'll be going back to it, or you can follow along uh, on the screen. You know, the uh, text that we just read that talks about the birth of Jesus Christ, you know, is particularly important for us, especially not only in the Christmas season, but in the culture that we live in as well. Um, Jesus Christ is perhaps the most influential and controversial figure to ever have lived and it is impossible to live in North America without being presented either with his person or activities that are related to the person of Jesus Christ. You know, according to a uh, computer science a professor and a Google engineer who were doing some work uh, on a list of some 800,000 names uh, in human history to figure out who is the most influential through a complex sort of algorithm of uh, looking at uh, how long an individual lived and the work that they do they've done, followers or people who search for them. Jesus Christ's name came out as number one on that list. Now, if you look, for example, at even Wikipedia statistics and you look at the analysis of the number of page edits they have, Jesus Christ's page ranks as number three with over 28,000 uh, edits to his page in the last 15 years. Now, to put that into perspective, there, um, compared to any other individual who has lived in the last sort of, or, or is 2,000 years old, those from ancient history, there is nobody else who comes even close uh, to that. Uh, if you look at the Pew Research Center, which documents the growth of religion around the world, there are over 2 billion people today who classify, identify themselves as Christians. So, professing or identifying Christians, something that they would tick off on a survey. That's a huge chunk of the world, Christ followers. Now, the question that we need to ask today for is, if um, this is the case and the statistics support the idea that Jesus really is an incredibly influential and at the same time controversial person, the question for us is, why is that so? 
What is it about the person of Jesus Christ that continues even after 2,000 years to grab at people all across the globe from the most highly educated people to those who have no education whatsoever? I think though it's important for us to understand though that the reason why Jesus is influential and controversial is not as a, what a lot of North Americans bill him to be. It's not because he's a great teacher. This is really important to understand. C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and a number of other books, including his famous work, A Mere Christianity, said this about the idea that Jesus was a great teacher. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I think Lewis is spot on, actually, with this. You know, brothers and sisters, as we walk through today's scripture passage and we are confronted with the work and person of Jesus Christ, namely how he entered into our world and how this was God's plan, my hope and my prayer for us today is that if you don't know who Jesus is, that you would, for the first time, come to realize some of these facts about him and realize who it is you're dealing with and that as influential as Jesus was during his day, he is still just as important to you today. And that Jesus demands a choice. Jesus is important to us because he frees us from the slavery of sin and death. And it's my hope that the Lord Jesus would allow us today, as we look at his word, to see the reality of what he offers in his word. So before we start, let's just pray and offer our time to the Lord. Father in heaven, I thank you for Jesus Christ. God, I've written words here on a page. But words seem so inadequate, God, when it comes to talking about an individual who is a king of kings and the Lord of lords, an individual who heals our broken bodies, O oh Lord, removes masses and kidney stones, O oh God, to the absolute amazement of the medical community. God, to talk about you is not to talk about some abstract concept but it's to talk about you, God, who are eternal and infinite and yet chooses to reveal yourself to us and to allow us to have a relationship with you. So, Father, I pray, O oh God, that as we look at our text today, as we consider what your scripture and your word has to say about your son, I pray, Father, that you would open our ears and the eyes of our heart, God, to consider Jesus, O oh God, and to consider him well and believe in him. So, Father, open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
lectures, let's begin by rereading verses 18 to 19, and we will take this a section at a time. Verse 18 begins, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, if you remember from last week, as we were looking at the genealogy of Jesus Christ in verses 1 to 17, we saw that the coming of Jesus Christ into the world was not some sort of accident, was, but was the perfect plan of God. After Israel had gone into exile, after kings had failed, after Adam had failed in his task, Jesus coming into the world was God's perfectly timed plan. But today, we're going to see something about this person that God chose to bring into the world at the correct time in human history to save us from ourselves. Now, in verse 18 that we just read, we learn something particularly unique about Jesus Christ, and that is that he is not the product of Mary and Joseph having a one-night stand before they were married. The text tells us here that before, before they came together really as husband and wife, before they consummated their marriage, Mary was already found to be pregnant. And to make sure that people understand reading Matthew's gospel that this wasn't the result of some sort of immorality or indiscretion on Mary's part, Matthew explicitly inserts into the text here that she is pregnant as the result of the work of God. That is the work of God through his Holy Spirit. Or this is, in other words, a virgin pregnancy through God's power. Now, I see some new faces here. If you have wandered into the church today and you are checking out Christianity and you're thinking to yourself, I just wandered into some message about a virgin giving birth, this is absolutely unbelievable. I don't know what you're going to say, but uh, we're educated here. I can't believe, perhaps, that Christians live in a world of fairy tales. What do you mean talking about a virgin birth? The first thing I want to say to that, to the North American mindset, is that, first of all, believing in a virgin birth has nothing to do with your level of education. And what I mean by that is, whether you've gone to Harvard and you have a PhD and you're famous on the world stage, or you come from a tribe somewhere in the Amazonian jungle and you've never sat in a classroom or seen a pencil in a day of your life, you actually don't need a school or anybody to tell you with a PhD that women don't spontaneously get pregnant. Even if you're one of those cases in which your parents lied to you as a child and told you that babies came uh, as a result of storks delivering them to the door and you only found out later in school and were totally blown away by that, Eventually, the point is, you will find out. It's one of those great things, those mysteries of life that as a child you know nothing about, but one day you will learn. Now, the key thing about understanding this is that um, Joseph, though he lived 2,000 years ago, wasn't dumb. Here's a phenomenon that we moderns have, and I think uh, Lewis puts it rightly when he says it's called chronological snobbery. And that is that we think that just because we are moderns and we are educated people, the people of a previous generation were old and therefore dumb. They just didn't know how the modern world worked. And therefore, they were willing to believe in fairy tales and silly things like this. But the truth of the matter is that Joseph is clearly not dumb. And alongside other people who understood how pregnancies occurred, he realizes that uh, he has a problem here on his hands. And news of Mary's pregnancy 
is not just something that he accepts blindly, but something that was shocking to him and also devastating. I can't imagine what it would have been like for Joseph, who is a carpenter, you know, looking at this girl that he's betrothed to or engaged to and going to be married to probably within the year. And, you know, maybe he's made her a plaque or something in his carpentry shop and says, here's a nice plaque made out of wood for our wedding. Surprise. And she has to tell him, surprise, like I'm pregnant. And that's not your kid. And he knows very well that isn't his baby. The question is, what do you think that he would have thought? I'll tell you, you know, he would have probably been devastated, you know, by your unfaithfulness. I think there's some hints here in the text that this is a shock. But let me tell you the one thing he does not think. The one thing he does not think is that his fiance, who is a virgin, never been married to anybody, kept under the watch of her parents, has conceived a baby solely through the power of God. That's what he's not thinking. I mean, who's ever heard about such a thing? Now, the text tells us, when we look at verse 19, it says here that Joseph is a just, or another way to translate that, is a righteous man. And what that means is that he is a man who wants to live righteously, that is according to the right standards that God has laid out for him in his word. In other words, Joseph is a Jewish man who is faithful to following God's commands for his life. Now, Joseph, knowing the Bible, knows that premarital sex is a sin, and also, therefore, he doesn't want to marry a sinful woman who especially probably cheated on him in this particular case. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, if Joseph was thinking about it and knew the law, he understood that the penalty for premarital sex or sex outside of wedlock, for adultery, for two people who consented to do this was very severe in the old days in Israel under a theocracy in that the penalty was death for both people involved. The one exception in the case was if a woman was taken against her will and violated, the only person who would be put to death according to the law was the man who did such a horrendous thing and the woman would be... Uh, would be, uh, would be alive. So in that case, only the man is executed. Now, we're not told here a lot of information about what Mary's parents thought or the neighbors thought around here. But it's possible that they believed her, although we can't say for certain. If you read in Luke chapter 1 instead, the other account, you realize that Mary has a cousin or a relative of some sort named Elizabeth. And Elizabeth actually is, gets pregnant in her old age and conceives a baby who will go on to be John the Baptist, who is a forerunner of the Messiah. And Elizabeth, when she sees Mary coming to her, the scriptures record that the baby inside of her actually jumps in her womb, probably about six months old at the time, when she hears Mary's voice. And Elizabeth believes what Mary has to say, and she says to Mary, how is it that the mother of my Lord is coming to me? Now, in other words, what she is saying is Elizabeth acknowledges that the child, whatever Mary has, is obviously significant and calls that child my Lord. So what Elizabeth doesn't do is say, you horrible teenage girl, what did you go and do breaking Joseph's heart like that? Elizabeth, for some reason, seems to understand. Now, to be fair, Elizabeth did have an angel come and visit her husband while he was on duty in the temple. But also at the same time, remember that her husband kind of laughed at the angel who told her that his wife, who has already gone through menopause, would have a baby. Okay, So just having an angel come and talk to you is no guarantee that you're going to believe something rather miraculous. But at least Elizabeth does. Mary's parents, we don't know. What the village thought, we don't know. 
But for most rational people, I think they would have reacted very much in the same way that Joseph had done. Young teenage girls don't spontaneously get pregnant. So the only logical thing to conclude is that she was unfaithful and that had to be dealt with. So I think there's good reason for Joseph to think that. But the problem with this, of course, is that now Joseph is in a quandary here. Probably about 18 years old. Mary would have been maybe 14 or 15 at the time, usual. They're just teenagers, right? They should be thinking about university entrance exams and high school, friends, new smartphone, getting their first job. But here he is on his hands dealing with somebody that he's supposed to be married to and he's got to sort out what he's going to do knowing that uh, it seems like she, she's cheated on him. I'm sure that Mary at this point would have told him not admitting any guilt that she had cheated on him, but simply have told him the story that an angel spoke to her and that what's in her is the result of God's work. Now, the question is whether or not Joseph could actually believe this. Now, during this time in which they lived, um, the Jews didn't stone people or execute them for immorality, or, and they didn't even have the right to do so. Uh, Romans only had, they lived under Roman oppression and Roman law at the time, and only the Romans could execute people. And that's why when Jesus is later executed at his crucifixion, the Jews actually have to go to Pilate to ask Pilate to be the one to execute him. So they can't do stoning, but what they could still do was actually go to court and get a divorce from an individual that cheated on them. And if they really wanted to, they could absolutely humiliate them. You know, you read now on Facebook, one of the things that the internet has done is that the internet has made it possible for people to have these uh, incredibly public now revenge stories on cheating spouses. It's all over the internet. There's entire websites devoted now to showing about the best ways to get back at an individual who has cheated on you. And some are absolutely crazy. But the point is, if Joseph wanted to go ahead and humiliate Mary, he didn't have Facebook or Instagram to do it on, but he could certainly have destroyed her reputation in the town and made her life miserable. In fact, Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 reads this way, giving him an out. Deuteronomy says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and if she then, if he then finds, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her, her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, basically he's free then afterwards uh, to remarry and to divorce his wife. Now, given that Mary had admitted no guilt at this point, and Joseph probably couldn't ascertain exactly what had happened, other than Mary telling him that an angel had told her that she had conceived through the power of God, I don't know what he would have thought. Perhaps in his mind he thought that Mary perhaps had been violated somewhere out in the field, but she was too ashamed to talk about it, or maybe she really had been unfaithful. Whatever the case was, in his mind he chose a safe, biblical, and compassionate way to handle the situation. Rather than taking revenge on her and outing her in public, he chooses actually to do something biblical, but also to show her mercy and to divorce her quietly. In his mind, he has settled somehow or another, she has obviously been made pregnant by a man. And whatever it is, he can't be a part of it. Now, if you're new to Christianity, you might have already heard and considered the fact that Jesus Christ is a real historical figure, and you might already know that Christian and non-Christian scholars alike all agree that Jesus Christ actually existed. But the question, of course, is for us, is whether or not Jesus Christ, the historical person, was also the divine person that the Bible lays him out to be. 
Now, you know, it's really an incredible claim what is being made here in just these few short verses that Jesus did not have a human father, but that he is the product of the work of the Spirit of God to allow a young teenage virgin girl to actually conceive. You know, when you consider this claim as how astounding it is, it really is uh, no less astounding than the claim that we as Christians make through the scriptures that Jesus Christ rose from the dead after being killed. You know, people all throughout church history have tried to come up with natural explanations for anything for for how Jesus could have a human father and not have to go with his whole virgin birth theory. For example, you look way back into the second century, you read about an opponent of the Christian church named Celsus who argued that Mary actually conceived Jesus through a affair with a Roman soldier by the name of Panthera. Now, Origen, an early church father, repudiated this claim and said that this was nothing but a smear campaign and this is nowhere close to the truth. But recently, some people have tried to pick up this story of Panthera, especially since they've discovered that in 1859, you know, there was this tombstone of a Roman soldier kind of around that area by the name of Tiberius Panthera. And then recently, there was all this speculation about the Jesus family tomb and so on, the conspiracy, that perhaps this Roman soldier is genuinely the father of Jesus. And we have his tomb to prove it. Everybody loves a good conspiracy theory. Now, in case you've watched those documentaries in the last 12 years and you're sitting there wondering, oh, did Jesus really have a Roman soldier father? I'm just going to say, first of all, that it's wildly speculative. First of all, that name Panthera was a very common name amongst Roman soldiers. And uh, and uh, to, to say that just because you find a tomb with the name Panthera on it would be like you going out and saying, oh, you don't know who your birth father is, and you know that his name is, uh, last name is Miller? Well, I found a tombstone, actually, with the name Miller on it. Perhaps this is your father. In fact, it's even in your neighborhood. So this is, this is not necessarily a slam-dunk argument. Very, very common sort of name. So great speculation there. It's so speculative, I think, that even a non-Christian scholar like Bart Ehrman, who does not believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and is actually full of errors, has publicly stated with regards to Panthera, it is usually understood by scholars, actually, to be a mistaken identification related to the common knowledge that Jesus' birth was unusual and that his mother wasn't married. Great theory, but does not hold water. See, I understand. For modern people and people back then, the idea of a virgin birth is really ridiculous. But at the same time, just because it's ridiculous or it offends our sensibilities doesn't mean it can't possibly be true. It might be unbelievable, but something you'll find out afterwards made Joseph actually change his mind. And he goes from being an individual that was about to divorce Mary to an individual who actually marries her, goes on to raise Jesus and has other children with her as husband and wife. Verses 20 to 21 are the key to helping understand what happened to Joseph. Read with me. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. Now this is 
really significant. Given the absolutely extraordinary circumstances that are going on, it's no wonder that an angel actually has to show up to Joseph and tell him that his wife-to-be has is pregnant because of God's work. And you look at how the angel actually talks to him. The angel knows what's going on in his heart, and he doesn't just call him by his name, Joseph, but he says, Joseph, son of David. You know, calling to his mind the idea that Joseph stands in the royal line of Jesus and the prophecy that we talked about that one day there will be a son of David to sit on David's throne and rule the world forever. So this angel is hinting at the prophecy that Joseph would well have understood given in that Davidic covenant. Now, Joseph doesn't learn everything at this point, but he learns at least three things from the angel which he are going to help him believe that this is true. The first thing that he learns is that, supernaturally speaking, this baby, Mary's baby, is actually from God. It's not the result of immorality with some Roman soldier or some other town folk. That's why he's still commanded to marry her. Being a God-honoring Jew, uh, all he wants to do is to follow the law of God, and God's command here gives him something to believe, to know that as he marries this girl, he is not helping her cover up her sin. The second thing that Joseph learns in this is that the baby is a boy. Now, you might not think much about this, but you've got to understand that this is the day before ultrasounds and blood tests, you know, and ways that we have medically to look into the womb to determine the gender of a baby. Now, I know there's all these old wives' tales that people tell you. I remember we hear, heard it, you know, when we were having our son. Oh, like if, the, if, your, if your bump is like really high, then what you have is a girl, or the bump is really low, then what you have is obviously a boy. If they're really fussy in the morning, your morning sickness is bad. All these different stories, but none of these things are absolutely conclusive. The angel, without any DNA testing or without an ultrasound machine, is quite able to tell Joseph that what you're going to have here is a boy. And in fact, that when you get him, I'll even tell you what you're supposed to name the boy. How does the angel know this? Well, the angel knows this because the baby is from God, and God has full knowledge of what is going on. And Joseph is going to have the opportunity to verify this actually in a very few short months. The third thing that we learn from the angel's discussion with Joseph is that Joseph isn't to be passive in this. Yes, he didn't help in conceiving this baby, but he has a great work to do in that he is supposed to name the baby. Now, naming the baby is very significant, actually, for a number of reasons. Now, firstly, even though Joseph was not the biological father of this baby, the act of naming the baby would be really the modern equivalent of signing the adoption papers for a child that's coming into your home. In other words, what it's saying in that world is that if I am given the right to name that child, it's saying, I'm adopting you into my family. And the very fact that Joseph would actually do this would mean that he would put Jesus into the line of the line of David, the son of David, and give this a sense here that he, this child could actually sit on the Davidic throne. This is part of God's master plan to bring his king onto the center stage of human history. Another thing that's important to understand, though, uh, about this is that naming an individual in their culture wasn't just the right of the father or allowed you to say, yes, I'm taking you into my family, but it also represented the hopes and the dreams of a people for their child. Now, for us in our culture, naming is really not that big of a deal. And the way that we pick names as North Americans, unlike many other cultures, is that we pick names because they sound nice or, you know, they're they're really great, you know, or they're um, particularly uh, strange, you know. So, some, you know, we love to get attention sometimes with these things. Now, 
I don't know if you knew this, but I was doing some reading on the most common names and the least common names. And in 2009, apparently there was a peak of a very uncommon name. Some 32 people named their child with five letters, A, B, C, D, E. 32 kids named A, B, C, D, E. That's actually a real name. You might ask, right, you know, looking at our culture, what does that mean? And the truth of the matter is that it means actually nothing. It means that you know the first five letters of the alphabet, maybe no more, right? But to name a child A, B, C, D, E, you're like, why would anyone do that? You know, I dug into it a bit more. I realized that you know how you pronounce that? It's pronounced abesity. You know, A, A, B, C, D, I would never have guessed that, but abesity. And the name is chosen by people who wanted something unique, and they said, because it just sounds cool, it's nice, it's so different. It's about being unique in North America and standing out in our culture. Now, that's an interesting case of a name that's just kind of odd. But in other cases, parents um, and parents name their children not something that's odd or sounds cool or just because they like the look of it. They do try to name their child something that they hope their child will grow into. There was a really odd case in the United States of uh, the Lane family in the 1950s in New York who did something really strange. Uh, they had some seven kids or whatever, and they named one of their children Winner. And the very last child that was born, they, I guess they ran out of names, they named him Loser. <laughs> What's really ironic about this is in their family how it turned out was that when uh, Loser actually went on to be, uh, you know, very good in school and uh, he became a policeman, whereas his brother actually turned out to be a drug addict and spent a lot of time in jail. So it's just, you know, really odd, you know, it's, and hilarious when you read stories like this. You know, sometimes when we give names, you know, like this, uh, you know, we, we mean something with it, but because we're just humans, we have no ability to force an individual to turn out in a certain way. Like, imagine if you could control the future by naming your child, and you say, I'm going to name my child $1 million, and he's going to be rich, right? It doesn't work like that. However, there's something different when it comes to God. When God is in the business of giving names in the Bible, he doesn't just have hopes and aspirations for the individual that he's naming, but God has the ability to carry it out to make sure that that person actually lives out according to their name. Like, for example, when you read in the Bible, Abram is renamed to Abraham, which means the father of a great multitude. And guess what? Abraham turns out to be a father of a great multitude. When you think about Jesus interacting with Peter, he renames, uh, or Simon, Simon Peter, he calls him Peter, or Kepha, this word that means like stone or like rock, saying, on you, you know, you're going to be a rock on which I build the church. And as we know in church history, Peter goes on to be a great pillar or a rock of the church in Jerusalem and around the world. When Joseph here is commanded to name this child that is born from a virgin, Jesus, what he's commanded to name this child is really significant actually as a name. You know the name Jesus actually comes from the Hebrew word Yeshua. And in Hebrew, actually, this name is actually fairly common. It's the same name as Joshua, actually, in the Old Testament. And it's a contraction of two words sort of put together. The first one is Yahweh, which is the name or the personal name of the Lord. And the second is the Hebrew word Yasha, which means to save. So when you take off the first part of Yahweh, Yah, and you take the second part of, Yesh, of, of Yasha or Shua, and you stick them together and you get Yeshua, so the name of Jesus, Yeshua, what you're saying is that in the name of this child, his name means God saves or the Lord saves. So every time you speak to his, his name, you're saying the Lord saves. Now, at this time, right, 
the Jews were living under Roman rule. And the one thing they thought about the most was that if they needed deliverance from anything, it was these pesky Romans who were really cramping their way of living, ruling over them and not allowing them to live free. All the people had this expectation that a Messiah one day would come and would free them from the Roman army and allow them to live free as Jews. But what's interesting about Jesus is when he comes and the angel says, he is the deliverer. He is the one who is going to save you. He is called the Lord saves. Guess what he's going to save you from? The Romans? No. He's going to save you from something far worse. And that is he will deliver his people from their sin. It's quite astounding, really, because um, if you were to talk to people today and you were to say, you know, if you could meet God and you would have him do anything for you, what would you want him to do? Some people would say, I'd like to own a house right in Vancouver. Oh, it would be really nice to have a new car. I wish that my kids could get into an Ivy League school. I wish that God would just take away my cancer and heal me right now. The list would go on and on and on, and it would be very comparable to a list that you would hand to Santa. But the truth of the matter is, when the Bible talks about what we need, the Bible says, you know what's first on the list that what you people need to be delivered from? It's not from the people who are coming after you because your credit card has been maxed out. What you need most of all is deliverance from your own sin. The wrongness that you have before an almighty God who looks on you with judgment. You know, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that one day when we stand before Him and we face Him in all of His glory, as good as you think you are now, you won't be able to hold a candle to this God. And in that moment, you will realize just how far short you fall from His glory. And if all you have to defend yourself before Him is your own words and your own set of good deeds, you are in absolute trouble. You need a Savior. You need somebody to put you in the right before God. You need somebody else to defend you. This is the whole story of the Bible. You see, what makes Christianity so different from every other religion in the world is that Christianity actually does not give you advice on how to live a better life. That's what religions around the world do. The religion says, this is where you are, and this is where God is, or this is where the truth is, and here are the different steps that you need to take there. Start building and start working on it. Christianity doesn't come in like that. Christianity says, I'm not here to offer you advice. When Jesus speaks, he says, I'm not giving you advice about how to get to heaven in terms of building your own staircase. First of all, you don't have the raw materials to do it. Second, you'll never make it. But what Christianity says is that Jesus comes and says, let me take the cross. And this is the only thing that will get you from here on earth to heaven. I died on that cross so that this cross could be put across that great chasm that exists between you and God and so that you might be restored to a right relationship with him. Christianity takes all the wood of our own efforts and throws it away and says, take the wood of the cross instead. Put that on the gap that exists between you and God. It is the only thing long enough to save you. You will never get there otherwise. See, what makes Christianity so different is that Christianity is not advice. Christianity is news. The gospel is news. It's not a declaration to you about what you need to do to get to God. It's a declaration about what God has done, what the king has done, how the king has arrived, and you have one thing to do. The one question you must answer is, how will you respond to the king that God has sent into this world? So different. He was born from a virgin. 
unstained from the curse of sin that infects all of us to this day, born from a virgin so that he could live a perfect life without sin and then die on a cross for our sins and give us his record of perfect life so that we could be free. That's why we love Jesus, right, so much. You know, but that's not all that Jesus does. You know, I think it's really important for us to understand that Jesus doesn't just show up as an afterthought in human history, as if God was looking at the world and said, oops, I guess I better fix something right now. No, I think it's really under, important to understand that Jesus coming into the world 2,000 years ago was God's plan all along, and that the way he came into the world communicates us to us something about the nature of God's plan and also why I think we can believe in him. Look with me at verses 22 to 23, the prophecy from Isaiah. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, this quotation comes virtually word for word from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Now, I know some of you might not be familiar with the context of Isaiah chapter 7, so let me just give it to you briefly in a nutshell. The year is like 735 uh, BC, and the kingdom of Israel has been split actually into two kingdoms. There's now the northern kingdom of Israel, and there's the southern king of Judah. And at this time, the king of Judah is a wicked man by the name of Ahaz. He's so evil that he actually offers his own son as a burnt offering to try to appease the gods and the demons that he worships. At this time, Ahaz is in trouble because he finds out that the northern kingdom's king, a man by the name, I think, of Pekah, and another one um, uh, of, of the king of Syria, are in league with each other, and they're about to come and to attack his southern kingdom. And he's very, very scared of them. Now, he doesn't really know what to do in this case, but instead of turning to God, as he should have, he actually turns to Assyria looking for humans for help. And in this desperate time, God, who still loves his people and is doing work for them, sends Isaiah the prophet to speak to evil King Ahaz. You know, it's really remarkable to think just about how merciful God is to even an evil people. And he reaches out to them. And God, through Isaiah, speaks to this wicked, self-reliant King Ahaz and tells him, I'm going to save you. I'm going to save your people. And so that you understand, you can ask me for anything. Ask me for a sign. I'm going to save your people. Ask me for a sign. Make it as deep as Sheol or the underworld or make it as high as the heavens. God is saying, ask me for anything for a sign to confirm what I'm saying to you is true, that I will come in and deal with those two armies that you are absolutely terrified of. And Ahaz, being the self-reliant evil king that he is, knows enough of the Bible just to misquote it. And he looks at Isaiah the prophet and says, no, I won't do it. I will not put the Lord God to a test. You know, it's absolutely ridiculous here because God has just told him, through a prophet, stop sinning, you know, and listen to me. I'm going to save you. Ask me for anything. And he refuses to do it. And in exasperation, Isaiah delivers to him a word from the Lord and basically says to him, listen up, all of you here. And he switches to the plural, O house of David, I have a message from God for you. You won't even ask God when God is inviting you to ask for a sign and God is about to mercifully save you. You're going to jeopardize the Davidic line because of your sin and God's promises through that covenant because of your foolishness and you're not going to even go to God about this. 
This is what God is going to do for you. You won't go to God. God is going to do it for you instead. You won't ask for a sign. God is going to give you a sign. And he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. So in other words, he's saying, God is going to defeat these two kingdoms that you are really worried about, but guess what's also going to happen happen afterwards? This is a sign, but in one sense, the sign is also followed with judgment. The Assyrian army that you are trusting in right now is going to come back in and sack your land and you are going to be absolutely destroyed. And later, as a curse for breaking God's law, you will be carried away into exile. Now, this is why the messianic prophecy is so important that's given in Isaiah 7.14. It's because as you read on about who this figure is, this Emmanuel that's introduced in 7.14, you start to realize that this Emmanuel talked about by Isaiah is an incredibly hopeful figure. And not only that, is a powerful figure who I think cannot possibly be fulfilled in Ahaz's time. So for example, if you read on in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 8, you read about the land and you find out that the land belongs to Emmanuel. You read in 8 verse 10 and it talks about how the nations of the world are going to be conquered and then it says God is with us or Emmanuel. You realize that Emmanuel is part of conquering all the nations of the world. You go a bit farther into Isaiah chapter 9, our favorite Christmas text, and you read this, right? To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. These are incredible titles given to the messianic figure whose name is introduced as Emmanuel. When you go farther into Isaiah's prophecies in chapter 11, he's actually called by another piece of imagery and that is the branch or the shoot or the one that comes from the stump of Jesse who was the father of David the king. Now what is this business of calling the Emmanuel the shoot that comes out or the branch that comes out of Jesse? Well the idea here is that the Davidic line is being compared to a tree. So right David is supposed to have descendants and is supposed to grow and what's happened here because of the exile is that the tree is going to be cut down and guess what grows out of stumps? Absolutely nothing. You cannot grow a tree out of a stump. And yet God is saying here, there is a one who's going to come from the stump. You're looking at what is absolutely hopeless after the exile, and guess what? I will make it so that there is a branch that comes out of that stump of Jesse. And when he comes to 11.12, he says this about the branch that comes out of Jesse. He will raise the signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So if you are to stop and just sum up the picture of Emmanuel in four chapters of Isaiah, you get an incredible picture of this branch, this Emmanuel, this messianic figure who is supposed to come. You realize that one, he's born of a virgin. Second is that when he comes, he's going to begin drawing all people to himself in the world. Three is that he will begin destroying the enemies of God Fourth, he's going to reign on David's throne forever. And five, he will only come after Israel has fallen into exile and sinned. Now, when you look at all this Old Testament imagery, all these prophecies that were made some 700 years before about the Emmanuel figure who was to come, you realize what Matthew is saying about Jesus and how significant this is. Jesus, Matthew is saying, this Jesus who comes is no accident in human history, but is the culmination of the plan of God given through Isaiah and other prophets, with some of these prophecies being more than 700 years old. 
This is the one who meets the qualification of being born of a virgin. This is the one who is going to conquer the world. He has no human father, so he's not affected by sin. God has come to be with his people, and that is the greatest news that you will ever hear. Emmanuel means God with us. And it, Matthew starts his gospel by saying, this is hope for humanity, God being with us. And guess how Matthew ends his gospel? Jesus speaking there in the Great Commission says, Behold, I'm with you to the very end of the age. All this to say about the person of Jesus Christ, he is spectacular because he is not only the presence of God with us, but he himself is the God who is with us. You know, I love how Joseph responds to this revelation about who Jesus Christ is, you know. Joseph, in verse 24 and 25, this is how he acts. It says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife but didn't know her until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You know, I love what Joseph does because of the way he responds here, right? Three, three things, right? Joseph is a godly man. He didn't try to humiliate Mary or to shame her for what she had done, but chose to divorce her quietly. Second thing that we learn from Joseph is that he's an open man. He knew that virgin births don't occur but yet he was willing to listen to the revelation of God given to him as God's word came to him and he believed it and got to see it happen. The third thing that Joseph does here is that he was obedient. The text tells us here that he took the child, he took Mary as his wife, and he named it all according to the instructions that were given to him to do. You know, friends, I asked earlier at the start of this sermon, who is Jesus to you? You, know, you look at this text and you realize there are incredible prophecies being fulfilled here. As unbelievable as a virgin birth might be, is it possible if there is a God who is in heaven and has made all things and has made you and me? You know, these prophecies in Isaiah, like I mentioned earlier, are over 700 years old. You know, when you look at, if you were to, you know, find a bottle somewhere on a beach, and you opened it up, and inside was a 700-year-old piece of paper. And it had on there your name, where you would be born, the circumstances of your birth, and what you would do in life. What would you think? I tell you what you wouldn't do. You wouldn't take this bottle and go like, oh, that's just somebody got lucky with a typewriter 700 years ago and throw it away. What you would do is you would take this thing to the Smithsonian Museum, and you would say, is this real? Is this a forgery? Which one of my Facebook friends did this? You know, this can't possibly be real. But the truth of the matter is, what we hold in our hands in the scriptures is exactly like that. A real document, real prophecies about a Jesus who was not only born of a virgin, but who was prophesied to come from a virgin some hundreds of years before. You know, there are dozens and dozens of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, and this is just one of them here. And here's my point. Do you believe that there is a God who can affect human history in this way? Can you believe that these things are actually real and that God wrote it down for all of us to see? I ask you to consider what the Bible has to say and to believe in a virgin birth, not just because I say it, but because God wrote about it and he predicted it and it is written down for us to see. You know, the one thing you cannot do when you leave this place this Christmas is to go back to thinking that Jesus is a great moral teacher and that Christians are just really, really nice people. No. Jesus himself does not leave you that option. The man who came born as a virgin died on the cross for human sin because that was the only way to bring us back to God. There is really only a few options for you. Either you have to say Jesus was lying 
and that he was more like a poached egg instead. He knew nothing of what he was talking about or that he was a lunatic instead and that you shouldn't listen to him whatsoever. Or perhaps he was just a legend and that there is no proof whatsoever for his life. The Bible speaks to the contrary and these documents talk about real prophecies and about who he is. Jesus Christ was real. And Jesus Christ is real and continues to live today. And the question for us is, you cannot refer to him simply as a moral teacher. You must make a choice. Don't say that you have not heard. Here is the evidence before you. And this is the most important decision that you will ever make in your life. You know, for those of you who are not Christians, I would invite you to respond to Jesus. To respond to him and to acknowledge him as the Lord, as who he actually is. And for those of you who are believers, I want you to remember this as Christmas, that Jesus Christ is the prophesied one who came at the exact time in human history to help save you from your greatest problem, that was your sin. You might die next year. You might have a terminal illness and you will never have another Christmas here. You might lose your job in the next week or you might become so disabled that you cannot work. You might lose your kids or your spouse. Maybe God will help you. Maybe he will save you. Maybe he will turn something which is absolutely awful into something that's great. But the one thing I can tell you, though I don't know what will happen to you in the next year, is this. That I know where you're going in your future if you know him. You will spend an eternity with Christ because he has taken away your sin from you and that is the greatest news you can ever receive. I don't know what your next five years are going to look like. Whether they will be horrific or that they will be great. But I do know what your eternity is going to look like and it will be beyond belief fantastic all because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you so much, God, for giving us our text today that tells us about Jesus Christ. He fulfills all these prophecies in the Old Testament to save us from our sins and is no accident. And Father, we look forward to the day when he will rule on David's throne and make everything right. But until that day comes, God, help us, God, with our unbelief. Help us to consider absolutely crazy things like a virgin birth and prophecies being written down simply because you are a God who controls human history and knows the future. Father, would you help us to love, love believe in, and trust Jesus more? So we give you thanks for this. And all glory and honor be to our wise King. In Jesus' name, amen.